Good morning. This is a reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We have been united with him like this in his death. We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace." Thank you, Sue. So we're going to begin this morning here with a little bit of trivia, a little sports trivia game. Yeah. What do the University of Iowa, Michigan Tech University, Yale University, and my alma mater, the University of Wyoming, what do they all have in common? Yeah, it seems like an odd uh, group, right? I mean, where do you even go with that? Well, here, here's, here's what I discovered on Wikipedia. So this is, I don't know how accurate this is, but it's just an analogy here. So it's not that big of a deal, even if it's off a little bit. I'm using this as an illustration down the road. But apparently, uh, these schools all have a tradition of singing the same song before football games. They, some of them have slightly different traditions. Some sing it during, like, the tailgating uh, part of the game. Some do it during the game. Some... They have different traditions, but they all have the tradition of singing the same song. And I, you know, I grew up going to the University of Wyoming, and so this was one of the songs that was part of the culture of going to a football game. And the lyrics to the song, and I've actually referenced this song before, goes like this. In heaven there is no beer. That's why we drink it here. Because when we're gone from here, our friends will be drinking all our beer. Today we are continuing in our series called Restoration, and uh, we're doing this series uh, providentially, it seems. God seems to have timed this series quite well, where we are in the process of restoring uh, the property here, a lot of renovations that are going on. We had some 
water damage that, uh, that have opened our eyes to various things that need to be renovated and all of this. And so I wasn't actually, pl- I mean, I was planning on doing this series long before this happened. And in God's providence, it's happening at the same time. And so now we have sort of a living object lesson. This is why the, the picture that I've used here is a picture of our, our lobby out there. And the idea here is that, is, that, is that as we see the church being restored around us, it can serve as a living object lesson for what God wants to do in our lives and in our world. That God wants to bring renewal and restoration to a very broken world. Uh, and that's really what this whole series is about. And, that, and there's a reason why we're doing it now, right? We're doing it now in light of Easter. That this series comes after Easter, we're several weeks now after Easter, and that is because the, the whole idea is that in light of Easter, it shows us God's plan to bring renewal and restoration to all things. That, that as, I, as I say, I said, I guess how many times have we been in this series? I'm not sure, but, but what I will continue to repeat throughout this series is that what happened to Jesus on Easter is actually what God's plan is for this world. That the resurrection of Jesus, the life, the victory over death that came in Jesus, we read throughout scriptures, is the first fruits of what is to come. That God's ultimate plan is to renew and to restore all things. And so that's what we're going to be looking at throughout this series is what does that mean for God to come and renew and to restore all things. And of course that begins with, with us, those who put their faith in him, put their faith in God, that through that, renewal and restoration can come that, and I've said this before, what happened to Jesus on Easter will happen to everyone who puts their faith in him. What happened to Jesus, Jesus' victory over death, everyone who puts their faith in him, that is what will happen to them. That through faith in Jesus, the very spirit that raised him from the dead then raises us unto eternal life. And so we, we, we see that there's this very literal, like, this is simple, like, he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. Very simple, very straightforward. But then there's also, throughout the New Testament, this idea that the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the resurrection, is already at work, is already available <coughs> to work in our lives and to bring renewal and to bring restoration in our lives. And that's actually what we find here in this passage. Romans 6 is a passage that is talking about how in light of the gospel, in light of what has come in Easter, there is this new power available to bring renewal and restoration into our lives now. And so what we're looking at is is this. You see, in light of Easter, in light of what happened in Easter, this then affects how we live. That Because of what happened in Easter, then ought to affect the way we live. The news of Jesus rising from the dead ought to affect how we live our lives. And this is important, right? Because sometimes there's, there's some news that you hear that has, you know, no impact on your life, right? We hear things all the time that have very little relevance to us and aren't going to, you know, like, you know, I, I don't know um, how many people here, Villanova won the national championship here. Um, I, I was like, good for you guys. But I wasn't like, well, my life will never be the same after this, right? It didn't change my life. I mean, I guess if you're a Philly sports fan, 
maybe you said something like that. Oh, my goodness, my life will never be the same since Villanova has won the national championship or whatever. But most of us, that's not news that's going to just change your life. It's not going to necessarily affect the way you live your life. But Easter, what happened on Easter, that news is a kind of news that really ought to lead us to live a very different life. And so the question which we're more or less addressing here is this, how then should we live in light of Easter? How then should we live? And, and this passage, it's, it's actually just incredibly straightforward. I'll just make it very simple. Are you ready for this? In light of Easter, we should stop sinning. In light of Easter, we should stop sinning. Now, I know this is like, all right, here we go. This is a very predictable thing for a pastor to say, right? Yeah, what, went to church. What did the pastor tell you? He told me to stop sinning, right? I mean, this is right in my wheelhouse, right? This is, this is exactly what pastor, right? This is it, right? This is, but I'm, I'm just going to just lay it out for you. It's that simple in light of Easter. He's saying, stop sinning, right? We see this here in verse, verse 13, uh, where it, it emerges throughout this passage, but verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. He's saying, in light of Easter, stop sinning. Now, this is, this is something now where I think we need to talk for a moment here about this concept of sin. And what, I, what I'm hoping to do here is throughout through this message and hopefully throughout the series, to redeem the word sin a little bit here. And here's what I mean by this. In our culture, the word sin is a very dated word. It's very dated. It's not not really a word people like to use. It sounds like the kind of word that maybe you used in generations past, but we don't really use that word anymore. In other words, to tell you to stop sinning, I might as well invite you to go roller skating. Right, who goes roller skating anymore? I mean, that's totally, right? We don't roller skate. That's totally dated. I remember when, when I was a, a kid in Wyoming, roller skating, I mean, maybe it was just Wyoming. Maybe it's never been a thing. I don't know, whatever. But out in Wyoming, we would go roller skating when I was a kid. And I remember, I remember driving to the Skyline Skate Rink. And to get there, we had to go to the other side of town, which took about five minutes uh, living in Laramie, Wyoming, and, and we, would, we went over this bridge that went over these railroad tracks, and then so when you're coming down, you're, on this, you're coming down this descent, and there was the skyline skate rink. And I, was, I, would, like, I would like have butterflies in my stomach. We're going to go roller skating at the skyline skate rink. And we'd go, and I remember, you know, all of the boys were mesmerized by Kayla Erickson because she could... I still, I mean, I still have this picture in my mind. She could skate backwards and brush her hair at the same time. And we, I mean, I can still see her, you know, and the the lights, the disco ball, and there she is. Anyway, so, but I mean, that was really fun and cool then, but I mean, it's kind of dated now, right? I mean, it was roller skating. And I would say that sin has sort of become dated in our culture as well. And what I hope, actually, is to redeem, I'm hoping that I want sin as a concept to make a comeback. Because it shouldn't be dated. It's just as relevant, it's just as necessary as it ever was. So hopefully we can redeem this a little bit. And, okay, so hopefully throughout this message that will 
emerge. But we're going to get back to this question here of, of sin. He says, stop sinning. And so now we've got to ask this question, well, why? Why should we stop sinning? This is sort of the point here. Why should we stop sinning? And the, what emerges from this text is, is really kind of simple. It's simply this. From this text, and then you read throughout the New Testament, and really throughout the Scriptures, sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to misery. Sin leads to destruction. We see this in verse 2. It emerges here. and We'll unpack this a little bit more in a minute, but in, actually beginning in verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And we'll get to that in a minute. And he says, By no means. We died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? Right, and I, I think it's kind of this image of, I remember when I was a, a bachelor living in my apartment, and, you know, I, I didn't do the laundry, and I didn't clean, and I didn't go grocery shopping. And, and so then there would come this point where I'm, you know, I'm like sitting uh, in just, you know, a, a filth. There's laundry everywhere, and there's no food in the cupboards, and everything in the refrigerator has gone bad. And then I have to say to myself, I'm like, how, you know, why would you live in this any longer? How can you live in this any longer? Or, or like maybe you, you go for days upon days without taking a shower. You ever done that before? I remember going on a traveling internationally and coming back and there just was no way to take a shower. We were in airports and all of this kind of stuff. And you just get this like slimy sort of scum on your skin. And there's that question, how long can I live in this? And that, that's what Paul's getting at here. You say, how, how can you... Live in this. Why would you live in this any longer? Because sin ultimately leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to, it leads to misery. But I think the reality is in our culture, many of us often have the almost opposite perspective. We don't think that sin leads to death. <laughs> we think that obeying God leads to death. We think that obeying God is a miserable way to live your life. And I think that that's clear in this song that is sung every home football game at the University of Wyoming. In heaven, there is no beer. That's why we drink it here, because when we're gone from here, our friends will be drinking all of our beer. Now, you know, clearly within the the storyline of that song, that song sees drinking alcohol as a sin, and we'll get to that later here. But the bigger picture that we need to see here, it's bigger than just that. It stems from this perspective that following God, being obedient to God is, is miserable. Like, why would you want to do that? And so, so heaven, and like heaven wouldn't be a place you would want to go. Like, why would you want to go to heaven? Because heaven is this place where you do what God says, and that sounds miserable. It's almost like this song has this idea that, that going to heaven is like having to go back to school after having been on a spring break for a week. Oh, gosh, I got to go back to school. And, and you know, all my, my friends that live in a different area and they go to different school, they're going to be having fun while I'm back in school. And, and it seems like this is the attitude that emerges from this song about, you know, following God and obeying God is, is, is like not what you would want that would lead to death and lead to misery and, and be restrictive. It's like it flips it. 
And so people are like, why would I follow Jesus if that's what it's going to be like? Well, I think we need to clear up some misconceptions here because Paul is saying the complete opposite. One of the things that we need to clear up here is that obedience to God is not about busy work. It's not about busy work. You all know what busy work is. Busy work is is when you have to do things that seem incredibly arbitrary. They have, there's no intrinsic value to doing this, right? So, you know, I, I love school, by the way. I, I wish I'd like to go back to school at some point. I, lo- I love school, but I didn't like all of my classes because sometimes they would assign you busy work, you know? You're just like, you have to do this assignment, but you have no idea how this is actually helping you at all, right? You ever had that kind of a class, and then this is a, those are the teachers that I couldn't stand. They just give you this busy work that really doesn't seem to have any, uh, it's not helping me in any way. It's just this work that I have to do. Or maybe you've worked for a boss where they give you busy work. And, you know, maybe it's like you have reports that you have to fill out that you're just like, why, why do I have to keep filling out? You're like, I don't even know if people read these reports in the first place, my boss is making me do all of this paperwork. It's completely irrelevant. It's completely unnecessary. And I think that some people, they have this idea that, that some of the commands that God gives us is busy work. And what's interesting to discover, actually, is that within the Bible, there's something interesting that we discover, is that there, God is against busy work to the point where he actually commands the people of God, to do something, okay? But then later on, when that becomes no longer helpful for where they are, then he no longer commands them to do it anymore. And this is actually one somewhat of a reductive way of talking about what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That what you find in the Old Testament is a lot of commands, a lot of commands that were given to the people of Israel, but then Jesus comes along and he basically says, okay, these laws, he says they have... They have, well, he says, I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. And what he means is they served a purpose, but they no longer serve that purpose anymore. And so if you keep insisting that people do them, it's just busy work. It's just arbitrary. And so this is one of these things where within the Christian world, we have to constantly be saying, like, you know, where do we come up with this idea that we have to do this or not do this? We've got to be asking ourselves, is this just, is this just busy work or is it, or is it significant? I'll, I'll kind of give you um, one that is, I think, of, of note. The, uh, so when Jesus came to fulfill the ceremonial law, that's basically what he's saying. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. And so what you find Jesus saying is, for example, he says, all foods are clean because a central part of the Mosaic law was that you had to avoid eating these certain foods and all of this. And so he abolishes that. And, he, and, and within that, what, what most scholars agree is that, that other aspects of the ceremonial law are also then no longer binding. One example that I would just highlight would be something like tattoos, right? It's clear in the book of Leviticus, it says that you should not wear tattoos. In our culture today, that seems very arbitrary. We're like, that doesn't, what would, be the, what would be the reason for that? What is, why is that a problem? And what we need to understand is that in the culture in which that was given, it was not arbitrary at all. It wasn't arbitrary at all. In fact, to use a, a rough analogy, and this is very anachronistic, so 
It's certainly not completely accurate. But let me just kind of put it this way. To, to, to wear a tattoo in the time in which this was given in ancient Israel would have about the same kind of force as if I decided to fly a flag with a swastika on it outside my house. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't fly a flag with a swastika on it. But I think we all kind of recognize that as Christians, that would, that would not be appropriate. That would be odd to, to do something like that because, because that symbol has come to mean that you identify in our post-Holocaust world that to, to put something like that up seems to identify you with a set of values that run entirely against Christian values. And I would say the same thing was true in ancient Israel, where basically tattoos were, if you wore a tattoo in ancient Israel, basically people assumed then that you were worshiping Canaanite gods. The Canaanites, they worshiped these gods, and that was one of the things that was sort of symbolic of that. And so to get a tattoo in that age would sort of symbolize that you're worshiping these these other gods. And that's just one example where, but then the culture changes, and that no longer means that anymore. And it can just become arbitrary, and it can become busy work, which is not, which is not what God is after. He's not after busy work. That's not, that's not what obedience to God is about. So we've got to kind of clear that up a little bit, because what we need to note is when we really look at at sin, especially as it is sort of uh, becomes, comes to a focus in the New Testament, where we get a really clear picture of what sin is and how it operates, is we need to realize this. There is an organic connection between sin and death. There's an organic connection. In other words, it's not simply like, well, if I do something bad, then God is going to smite me. If I do something bad, then God is going to you know, do, do something to me or something like that. Actually, there's a much more organic connection between sin and death. And we, we find this in the book of Galatians, I think. Galatians chapter 6, where Paul is unpacking, again, he's exhorting them not to sin. He's exhorting them to live uh, in a different way. And listen to what he says here. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And he uses this analogy of sowing, right? And, and, and here's kind of where he's going with this. If you plant a weed... Uh, God doesn't punish you and have a weed grow. It just grows. You planted a weed, it's going to grow. If you plant a thorn bush, it's just going to (laughs) create a thorn bush. And the same thing, what he's getting at here is there's that same sort of connection between sin and death. And what he's really getting at here is that this is God's world. God has created it a certain way. And if you don't live according to the way in which he created it, it's just naturally not going to go well. Now, you can be fooled in the short term into thinking that it will. You can be fooled in the, in the short term into thinking that living 
in opposition to God's way of life will lead to life. But in the long term, it won't because it's like he has set up the way this, this world works. And if you don't operate according to that, eventually it's going to catch up with you. So there's this organic, there's this organic connection. So I'll give a sort of an obvious example of this. Um, the Bible and, and in the New Testament, it says do not uh, drink excessive alcohol. It says do not get drunk. Now, it, it doesn't say that drinking alcohol itself is wrong, right? And that's a, that's a difference that we have to see. The Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is wrong, but it does say that excessive use of alcohol is, is a sin. And of course, if you think about it, well, why is that? I mean, there is just an organic connection between excessive alcohol use and death and destruction, right? I mean, if, if you drink too much, it's not like that God's like, well, he drank too much, so I'm going to give him a hangover. That's just what happens if you drink too much. That's the way the world works. It just happens that way. If you drink too much, it's not like God has to say, well, I'm going to make him so he's completely out of control, you know, because he disobeyed this commandment. That's just what happens when you do it. There is this organic connection. You know, if you, if you engage in sexual promiscuity, if you engage in that and, you, and that becomes a way of life for you, God doesn't really, he doesn't have to like punish you to make things go bad for you. It just happens that way. You're, you're, you, you, you're unable because you begin to live this life of sexual promiscuity. Now you're just simply unable to engage in the, the sort of intimacy that the beautiful intimacy of a marriage and a relationship is just not possible because you've, you've gone, you have, you're reaping what you sow. There is this organic connection between sin and between death. And, and this is why he insists here, right? He insists that we should stop sinning even though we're forgiven of it. Right? Look, look what he says here in verse... Uh, oh, I'm in Galatians. So let me go back to Romans here. Look what he says here in, uh, in verse... Yeah, well, back in, in verse 1. Yeah. Okay, so... What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Now, why why does he say this at the beginning of this passage? It's because in the chapters that lead up to this, he has simply been articulating over and over again the powerful grace of God. That no matter what you have done, no matter how you have lived your life, no matter how far you have turned from God, that he loves you and he died to forgive you of that that Jesus died to forgive you of your sin, and that if you turn to him, he welcomes you back into his presence. And then what he actually says is, is interestingly enough, he says that because of our sin, God is, we see God's glory even more. Right? Because we've sinned against God, now we see just how beautiful and how great God really is. The, the, the more that you sin, the more you begin to realize the depths of God's love for you. The person who has sinned and has turned away from God and has walked away from God oftentimes can come to a greater appreciation of the grace of God because of where they've been. And so, so then there almost became, it seems, this idea, well, wow, okay, <laughs> if, if sinning just makes God look even better because we see the depths of his grace, we see how loving he really is, well, then maybe we should just keep sinning. That's the sort of argument that he's addressing here. And what he's saying is no. 
No, because here, here's the point. Forgiveness, listen to this. Forgiveness does not really do you any good if you don't turn from it, from the sin. God's grace doesn't really do you any good if you don't turn from what it was you were living in. This is the point. There's this organic connection, right? It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter that if you just keep living in that sin, yes, you can always turn to God. The grace of God is always there. But if you never turn from it, that grace of God doesn't help you. There is this organic connection. I, I mean, to put it a, use an, another analogy here about how the grace of God doesn't help you if you aren't desiring to turn from the sin. I'll, I'll use an, another analogy here. When I was a senior in high school, I took French. And I remember, and I may, I may have misunderstood her because this paints my teacher in a bad light, but she, I, feel, I think she actually said to me halfway through the class in my senior year, there's still like, you know, several months left. And she says to me, you know, Kevin, you know I'm going to give you an A. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. And sure enough, I, I, I got an A, and it became clear that, that she was going to give me this A on the basis of grace. All on the basis of grace. It, it wasn't based on my performance. That's grace. You're, you're, I was justified. I was, I was seen as right before the Board of Education with my A on my transcript, right? So I was right. Positionally, I was right before the, the Board of Education. And, and so thank God for that grace. But here's the thing. I don't know any French. I can't speak French, right? So the, the grace... I mean, that's nice, but it, it didn't help me because now I'm still living in my non-French-speaking ways. Similarly, yes, the grace of God is always there to welcome us back. But listen, if we just continue to live in sin, it's not going to help us because there is this organic connection, this organic connection between sin and death. So, so Paul is saying, stop sinning. In the book of Colossians, he He makes it even more, uh, he says it more forcefully. He says, put sin to death. Put sin to death. In other words, you don't, I've said this before, you don't put sin in time out. You don't put sin in time out. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to stop slandering people. Uh, I'm going to fast from slandering people. For six weeks, I'm not going to say anything mean about anybody. I'm going to fast from it. I'm going to put slandering in time out. Oh, but when the six weeks are up, Oh, people better look out. I'm going to be right back. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to fast from sexual promiscuity. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to put it in time out. You know, it needs to go in time out for a little while. Six weeks, um, you know. But then after six weeks, I'm just going right back into it. No, he's saying, you don't put sin in time out. You don't fast from sin. You put sin to death. In light of Easter... In light of the coming of Jesus and in his death and his resurrection, how are we then to live? And it's stop sinning. Stop sinning because sin leads to death. But secondly here, and this is where where we really get to the heart of the gospel, stop sinning because it's actually possible to turn from sin now. In light of Easter, it's actually possible to turn from sin. 
this is where we see really the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion is that Christianity is not simply about commands to live a certain way. Christianity is the announcement that the power is available to begin to live that way. Right? I mean, if you look at the difference between Christianity and other religions in terms of their morals and their ethics, there are certainly differences, but there are a lot of similarities as well. Lots of religions will teach you, you know, not to steal. Lots of religions will, will promote um, you know, uh, sexual fidelity, faithfulness, that sort of thing. Uh, lots of religions will, will teach us not to murder and, and to be kind and all of that. But what's so, so unique about Christianity is it's saying that, you know what, that's not possible for you to do on your own. It's not possible. And, and this is actually what Paul unpacks in the earlier chapters of the book of Romans is he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. There isn't one person. There isn't one person who just naturally has the ability to live the obedient life. To put it, to put it as, as Augustine, St. Augustine put it, I just like to say this because it sounds, sounds kind of fancy. Things always sound cooler when you, when you use Latin, if I can find it here somewhere. Yeah, he says, we are non, non posse, non picare. In our own state, in our own state, apart from the work of the Spirit in us, we are non posse, non picare, not able to not sin. We are not able to not sin. But in light of Easter, in light of Jesus' death and his resurrection and the availability of the Spirit to work in us, we are now passe non picare, able to not sin. You see, this is really the heart of the Christian faith. The Christian, this, this is, and I've shared this before too. This is why uh, for Christianity, uh, Easter is the central, the central uh, celebration that we have. And uh, Pentecost... Uh, is not as central. What's interesting about that is Pentecost in the Old Testament had a number of different meanings, but one of the things that they celebrated at Pentecost was the giving of the law. was the giving of the law, the giving of the commands. This is how you should live. And what's actually interesting is that within Christianity, Pentecost is actually changed, and it becomes the celebration of the coming of the Spirit. And so it becomes a celebration, not simply that God has shown us how to live, but that he's actually giving us the power to do so. The heart of the Christian faith is that apart from the work of the Spirit, we are slaves to sin, right? This is why Paul uses this analogy of slaves. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I just want to end by asking you this question. What are you enslaved to? What are you enslaved to? Because that's actually a very good illustration, slavery of of what is at the heart of sin. Sin is, is, is when you are enslaved to something, you know. And so maybe, maybe for you, maybe for you, you are enslaved to sex. Just came back from a conference where uh, a man was sharing about his struggles with sexual addiction and how he's finally come out of that through his faith and through his, his trust in Christ and through understanding that he's begun to have deliverance 
from that, that he was enslaved to it. He thought that it was giving him life, right? He would pursue this, and he thought it was giving him life, but he came to realize he was enslaved to it, that he couldn't not do it. He couldn't go in, and, and the way, the damage that it caused to his life and his family, he was enslaved to. What, what are you enslaved to? Maybe you are enslaved, maybe you are enslaved to this idea of success. That's what you're enslaved to. And you'll do anything to be successful. You'll do anything, and, you'll, you, and what this means is, you see, because you're enslaved to that, then you will begin to disregard, uh, you will begin to disregard the other people and their feelings, and, and their, their, you, that will become less important to you because you're so focused on success, and you can't give it up. I remember going on a, on a retreat with a, with a group of, of men, and it was a six-day rafting and, and prayer retreat. There were about eight of us, and, and one time we were all sitting around the fire and just kind of talking about life. And this one individual, he, he was having a lot of success in where he was going, the direction he was going, but he just said, I can't stop. I can't stop. I'm just, I'm so driven by this that I've come to realize it's not really even me that is propelling me towards that. It's success that I'm enslaved to. What, what, what are you enslaved to? What, what is it in your life that you realize has control over you? And because it has control over you, it leads you to live in ways that you know are not helpful for you, for your family, or for others. The heart of the Christian faith is that in light of Easter, that Jesus died to forgive us of our sin. And through the resurrection, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to work in you and to bring transformation into your life. Once again, over here we have the tree of life. This is this tree that changes what it is depending on the season, and right now we're calling it the tree of life. And and on it, we have on it these different qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, the life that flows out of a life that is connected to God, and it's a life of joy. It's a life of peace. It's a life of freedom, and it's a life of obedience. It's a life of, of kindness, becoming a person of kindness. It's, a, it's becoming a person of faithfulness. It's becoming a person of self-control. And so what I want to encourage you to do throughout this series is to feel free to come forward. As I said, it before the service, at the end of the service, as I said, during the service, come forward and, and, and look at the tree and look at the different dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit and say, which one, am, what am I struggling with? What do I need the most out of these? And then take it home and then throughout this series, just pray that in light of Easter, in light of the coming of the Spirit, that God might come and bring restoration in you. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for your grace and for your power. Lord, I know that in this room this morning there are those who are broken. I know that because I'm broken. We are all broken, Lord, apart from you. 
God, I pray that this would be a place where it's safe to be broken. It's a place where we can come and find grace. And it's a place where we can come and find hope. God, I pray for healing. I pray that your spirit would come in light of Easter, that you might come and first convict us of the way in which we're living, help us to see the ways in which the course of our life is not leading to life, but to destruction for us and for others. God, convict us of that. God, may we come before you and find your grace and then your power. May may we see that there is hope, Lord, to move beyond that. God, I pray that we would begin to experience the fullness of this new life that you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.